Welcome back to Run the List, a medical education podcast in partnership with McGraw-Hill Medical. Our hosts are Dr. Naveen Kumar, Dr. Walker Red, Dr. Emily Gutowski, Dr. Joyce Sow, and myself, Blake Smith. As a quick disclaimer, this podcast is meant for informational and educational purposes only and should not be understood as medical advice under any circumstances. Welcome everyone to Run the List. My name is Joyce Sow and I'm one of the hosts and I'm so excited to share with you a special episode on advanced diuresis. With me here today is a special guest, Dr. Leslie Chang, who's a hospitalist at MGH that I personally have had the honor of working with and learning from last year. She received her MD from Duke in 2018, graduated from the MGH Internal Medicine Residency Program in 2021, and is currently a hospitalist and member of the core educator faculty at the MGH Medicine Residency Program, where she attends on the teaching service. She has also served as an editorial fellow of the New England Journal of Medicine for the past two years and has interest in digital medical education. You might recognize her voice from her hosting some of the New England Journal of Medicine Resident 360 podcast episodes lately. Dr. Chang has been an incredible teacher and mentor to many of us, and I'm so excited to be able to introduce her to all of you. Welcome, Dr. Chang. Thanks, Joyce. I'm a huge fan of this podcast and of Joyce Sao, so I'm super honored to be here today. Oh, man. Okay. Well, today I am very excited to talk about diuresis, which we commonly perform across many medicine services, including general medicine, the ICU, as well as cardiology. As we do here at RTL, we'll start with the case. So I'll tell you about Ms. E. Ms. E is a 79-year-old female. She has a history of hypertension, CKD with a baseline creatinine of 1.5, COPD on two liters of nocturnal oxygen, and HEF-HEF with a recent admission for a heart failure exacerbation one month ago, and she comes in with shortness of breath and fatigue. Since returning to her house after a round at rehab after her last admission, she's been quite deconditioned, leaving the house minimally and eating primarily microwave meals that her sister sends her. Prior to presenting, she says she needs to take breaks walking between even rooms of her house, despite wearing her previously nocturnal oxygen now around the clock. Her home meds include losartan, amlodipine, fluticasone salmeterol, as well as furosemide, 40 milligrams daily, which she takes consistently. On presentation to the hospital, her vitals include a normal temperature, a BP of 110 over 75, and an oxygen saturation of 85% on 2 liters, which improved to 90% on 4 liters of oxygen. Her weight today is 248 pounds with a prior dry weight of 245. Her exam is notable for diffuse crackles in her lungs, as well as 2 plus lower extremity edema to the knees. Her labs are notable for an NT Pro BMP of 5,700 with a prior discharge NT Pro BMP of 1,200 and a creatinine of 2.6 from her baseline of 1.5. So this patient, as you might be able to put together, is likely volume overloaded. But before we think about how to approach diuresis, can you help us understand what you use to determine volume status in a patient on the wards and what might be some of those pitfalls? Absolutely, Joyce. Debating a patient's volume status in rounds is actually one of my favorite things to do. Um, it's sometimes quite tricky, though so important in guiding our management of whether to pursue diuresis or not. So to answer the question of, is this patient volume overloaded, I depend on a number of historical features, physical exam findings, and lab values. Within the history, in addition to the progressive hypoxemia and the dyspnea on exertion described in the case, I like to specifically ask about orthopnea and paroxysmal nocturnal dyspnea, which actually help point me towards an elevated filling pressure. And just as a quick reminder, orthopnea is needing to sleep more reclined, whether that's using more pillows or sleeping in a recliner, 
because the patient otherwise feels short of breath, laying completely flat. And paroxysmal nocturnal dyspnea is the patient who wakes up in the middle of the night because they are short of breath and need a minute to catch their breath, not just waking up in the middle of the night because their cat jumped on their bed or they need to use the restroom. It's specifically for shortness of breath. So all of this in conjunction with worsening lower extremity swelling or abdominal distension, and by abdominal distension, I mean the pants are starting to get tight or she's had to move up another notch on her belt buckle. This constellation of historical features suggests a patient who is volume overloaded. And now the exam is where things start to get fun. So the physical exam, in my humble opinion, is key to diagnosing decompensated heart failure. Here's where the JVP or the jugular venous pressure exam is the star. I think it's the best day-to-day -day surrogate assessment of filling pressures. If you have a bedside ultrasound available, obtaining a sonographic JVP in a patient whose JVP is otherwise somewhat difficult to visualize can be a game changing. Otherwise, listening to the lungs for crackles is a common practice, but I think not nearly as helpful as looking at the JVP. Crackles can be due to a host of other reasons, such as atelectasis, or there can be no crackles at all in a patient who is volume overloaded due to upregulation of their pulmonary lymphatics with chronic heart failure. So I don't find it nearly as helpful as the JVP exam. Similarly, isolated lower extremity edema can be due to many other causes, such as chronic venous disease or lymphedema. So when it comes to the physical exam, I always say, just go for the jugular. And finally, for the data, the patient is three pounds up from her dry weight, which may represent increased volume and fluid weight, but you have to question the data. Was it a standing weight or was it a bed weight? If it was a bed weight, did she have her purse on her bed, her favorite pillow, her three blankets and a TV remote when it was measured? I sometimes think of bed weights as random number generators. I don't hang my hat on them. So do your best to get a standing weight when you can. Similarly, the NT ProBMP can be helpful like in this case when you're comparing it to a baseline, but an isolated value cannot diagnose heart failure. If it's low, it may be helpful ruling it out, but is it just low because the patient's BMI is high? Or if the NT ProBMP is high, is it because of her underlying kidney disease? It's not that straightforward and has to be interpreted in the greater clinical context. As the radiologists always say, clinical correlation advised here. The goal of this was not to make you question everything in medicine, but to understand that every piece of data has its caveats. And it's a sum of the historical features, the physical exam findings, the laboratory studies that can help you understand the clinical picture and answer the seemingly simple question that you might get on rounds, is the patient volume overloaded? Awesome. Thank you so much, Dr. Chang. Um, I love the last point, which is that you need to use the data in its totality together to make a clinical determination. Um, and as you can tell, our clinical determination here is that this woman might benefit from an admission for diuresis, surprise, but also for her AKI. Can you walk through your initial considerations when starting inpatient diuretics for a patient? Yes, I think there's nothing more satisfying than successfully decongesting a patient. They often feel noticeably quite better quite soon, and they think you're the best doctor ever. And I love talking about IV diuretics. So the question to consider here is how much diuresis, IV or PO, which diuretic do you choose, what dose, and many more questions. So the general rule of thumb I follow here is to start with IV furosemide, never PO initially while they're hospitalized. 
They're in the hospital. They deserve the good stuff, so give them the IV furosemide. As for the dose, I'm guided by the cleverly named dose trial, which was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2011, which showed better symptom improvement with a high-dose diuretic. In the study, they defined this as 2.5 times the outpatient dose. So if this patient in our case is on 40 milligrams of oral furosemide daily at home, I would give her 40 to 60 milligrams of IV furosemide to start. How did I come up with this number? So one rule of thumb that I would really encourage you to burn into your brain is the 80-40-21 rule. This means that 80 milligrams of oral furosemide is equivalent to 40 milligrams of IV furosemide, which is then 20 milligrams of PO torosemide and one of bumetanide IV or PO. So going back to our patient, employing this 80-40-21 rule, IV furosemide is twice as good as oral furosemide. So starting with 40 milligrams IV is essentially doubling her home dose of 40 milligrams of her oral furosemide. If the home dose is unknown, I generally try to start with IV furosemide dose that's 20 to 30 times the creatinine. And this is because the drug needs to be delivered to the nephron to work. So when you have a patient with a lower GFR, like in our patient with CKD, you'll need a higher dose of IV furosemide to start with. You know, I've really never used or heard of the creatinine times 20 to 30 rule, but I think it's quite helpful for folks who are what we call furosemide naive. I've also used prior hospitalizations to guide me looking at the doses they needed for effective diuresis in their last days. So for Ms. E, the inpatient team chooses to start diuresing with 40 of IV furosemide. Can you walk us through first the loop diuretics and their properties and shed some light on how you might use them? Sure, this is taking me all the way back to med school and to renal physiology, so I'll, I'll do my best here. So the loop diuretics work at the loop, and that's easy enough for me to remember. And I think they specifically inhibit the sodium-potassium chloride transporter in the ascending limb in the loop of Henle. I like to generally think of the goal being effective decongestion, and we do that by successful naturesis, which means excreting sodium in the urine. So the question we're asking is, how do we get rid of sodium from the body? We talked in the last segment about the three different loop diuretics, furosemide, the torsemide, and bumetanide. Furosemide is generally our go-to loop diuretic. It's the cheapest and has a duration of action of about six hours, thus the name Lay6. The real downside, though, is that the oral bioavailability of this medication really varies, with some studies citing anywhere between 10 to 90%. That's a huge range. Torsamide and bumetamide may have more predictable bioavailability, so these drugs may be more reliable on discharge. Though a recent trial studying torsamide versus furosemide, the Transform HF study, showed no difference in mortality or quality of life. In the inpatient setting, though, now that you've decided on 40 milligrams of IV furosemide to start, there are two big things I'd like you to keep in mind. First, you need to always check back with the patient in an hour or two to make sure she's augmenting her urine output and that the IV dose you chose is working. If not, you might not have hit the threshold to achieve that effective naturesis and diuresis yet. So what you'll do is double the dose of IV furosemide until they start peeing. Giving another 40 milligrams of IV again is not the answer here. Just go ahead and double the dose. It's okay to be aggressive to find that dose that hits the threshold. They're here to be de decongested, so make sure not a minute is wasted. Second, how fast do you go? I'm a big believer of going as fast as you can, 
as fast as the hemodynamics, the electrolytes, and the kidney function tolerates. So a total body balance of two, three, four liters negative, it's okay if all else looks good. I love that. I think what you mentioned earlier about the fact that different patients might have different thresholds at which they start augmenting their urine output is the key. And so keeping an eye on their urine output in the hours following a dose of loop diuretic or other diuretics is really the most important point here. So for Ms. E, in the six hours after her furosemide dose, she's putting out about 800 cc's of urine with about 500 cc's made in the first two hours. Her oxygen stats are still maintained in the 88 to 92% range with four liters of oxygen. Dr. Chang, can you talk to us about how you monitor the effectiveness of diuresis? Sure. Within the first few hours, you should get a response. The patient will tell you about it if they're peeing. But in terms of the objective data, here we can trend the JVP exam, the ins and outs, and the daily standing weights, not the bed weights, as we just learned. Importantly, though, you're trending symptom improvement and hypoxemia. If we're seeing her oxygen wean back down to her baseline requirement, or we're seeing that her lower extremity edema gets better, things are really going in the right direction for her. Great. How do you think about the creatinine? Do you use that as part of your objective data? Yeah. So let's engage a little bit in understanding her AKI and what the serum creatinine trend tells you about your attempts at ongoing diuresis. So here's where the heart and the kidneys meet in this fantastic term called cardiorenal syndrome. There's actually five different types of cardiorenal syndrome that describe the bidirectional interaction between the heart and the kidneys, and they classify it by chronicity of disease as well. I won't take the time to go through all the different types, but for our patient here, we're referring to type one cardiorenal syndrome, which describes an acute decompensated heart failure resulting in acute kidney injury. And the pathophysiology I think about here in a patient who is clearly volume overloaded is increased renal venous congestion, then leading to an increase in renal venous pressure and thus overall decreased renal blood flow, ultimately resulting in that AKI that we see in her. So the answer here is decongestion via diuretic therapy. Don't let that initial AKI scare you into holding diuresis here. Because if you think the patient is still clinically volume overloaded and cardiorenal syndrome is at play, you should be diuresing her. Now, for patients who you are diuresing for a while, who have a difficult volume exam, I will at times diurese to a creatinine bump. What this refers to is as you get volume off, you'll see the BUN and the creatinine levels rise. If this increase in serum creatinine level appears to correlate with intravascular volume depletion, in these cases, I would suggest a diuretic holiday or holding off on diuretics for a day or so. So now you've seen two different scenarios, one in which an elevated creatinine means diurese, and one in which I would recommend a diuretic holiday or don't diurese. So all this to say, going back to our initial point, in the end of the day, let the patient's volume status guide your diuresis. Don't let some mild hypotension or a mild creatinine bump hold you back from more diuresis if on exam the patient is still volume overloaded. One caveat here is when do we get concerned? So the main time when I would get concerned is if the patient is still volume overloaded with a rising creatinine or volume overloaded with worsening hypotension. To me, this indicates an issue with poor renal perfusion. So is the patient's cardiac index so bad that the diuretics aren't even being delivered to the kidneys because there's not enough blood flow to the kidneys? 
I would call for help at this point for consideration of inotropic therapy and consider a step up in level of care for her. Wonderful. Dr. Chang, I just wanted to clarify one thing when you talked about a creatinine bump. And so oftentimes when you see the creatinine go up, you can wonder whether it's related to hypovolemia or you wonder if you're actually causing real damage to the kidneys. Can you clarify when you see a creatinine bump, what you're thinking in terms of pathophysiology, what's happening underneath? I don't think of loop diuretics as being directly nephrotoxic. And so oftentimes when I see a creatinine bump in the setting of someone who's volume overloaded or someone we're aggressively diuresing, I think of fluctuations in renal blood flow, either due to renal venous congestion or decreased intravascular volume. And so the exam is really most important thing to guide you here. Amazing. That's super, super helpful. I think we always diurese to creatinines. It's very helpful to think about what the kidneys are doing when we're giving folks diuresis. Let's talk about the intake part of intake and output or I's and O's. Dr. Chang, what is your inpatient approach to fluid restriction and sodium restriction for the intake? I love this question. Um, I've discussed it with many different cardiologists and have gotten opposing viewpoints and opinions here. So this is my general practice. Sodium restriction, I believe, is a practice that's been recommended for many years according to guidelines, though recent randomized controlled trials may question some of the underlying evidence to this practice. But I still do it because I think the average American diet contains way more salt than the advised two grams of daily intake. And there's good evidence that sodium intake is related to hypertension, which is then linked to many other cardiovascular conditions. So in the hospital, I'm still prescribing the two gram sodium and two liter fluid restriction. Plus, a few minutes ago, we talked about the goal of diuresis being naturesis or sodium excretion in the urine. So the less the patient takes in, the more headway we can make here. On discharge, I try to generally have the patient on an oral diuretic that keeps them a little bit negative, understanding that the food in the hospital is not always the best and that patients will likely eat or drink more at home. Wait, Dr. Chang, so you're implying that the food in the hospital isn't very good? (laughs) (laughs) I've had patients say this is the best food I've ever had, but I think the majority of patients are less inclined to think positively about the food. Yeah. We used to play a game on rounds where we'd go around talking about what our favorite patient food might be if we were to try it off of their trays. Um, Definitely the mac and cheese. (laughs) Exactly. Let's go back to talking about diuresis. I love that you're so evidence-based. It's really, really helpful to ground what we do and practice in real evidence, even though I think typically we oftentimes learn from people who have done things before we have. And so I think being able to combine both experience as well as the data is quite helpful. I've certainly seen attendings go both ways. On the one hand, some have taught me that it's important to figure out diuretic dosing to maintain an even or slightly negative TBB as close to possible in a normal diet of theirs, which might involve freer fluid and salt intake, while others find that the strategy is actively hindering our ability to rapidly and effectively reach our goal of euvolemia. I like the approach of getting them a little bit negative, allowing for wiggle room at home, while also educating the patient on watching sodium and fluid intake. Now we'll give a case update on Ms. E. So we keep diuresing her. Her total body balance or her net I's and O's are about negative two liters a day with her weight coming down beautifully and her Q6 output after her ferrosamide dosing is in the 500 to 600 cc range. But soon her urine output starts to downtrend on the same dose. How do we think about augmentation of diuresis? Good question, Joyce. Yeah, I like to take a stepwise approach to this. So my first step is generally to start by increasing the ferrosamide dose and the frequency. 
So don't be afraid to get that dose up to 100 or 120 milligrams IV and dose it two or three times a day. I try to avoid night times because I don't want the patient to be getting up, going to the commode, falling in the middle of the night. Um, so I try to keep those two to three doses during the day. Let's say we have her now on 120 milligrams IV twice a day, and she's still not diuresing. So at that point, I would go up one step and start a drip. Always start the drip with a bolus of that same loop diuretic, and whenever you're increasing the drip, give another bolus. If that doesn't work, then I pull out the big guns and think about something called sequential nephron blockade. It's just a fancy term for sequentially blocking each part of the nephron from reabsorbing sodium. Because remember, the goal is to achieve effective naturesis. So for example, with chronic loop diuretic use, you can see a compensatory hypertrophy of the distal collecting tubule, or the DCT, which we call the breaking phenomenon. This leads to all the sodium that the loop cannot reabsorb, because you're giving a loop diuretic, then getting delivered distally and being absorbed by the DCT. So what do we do in this case? We can give a thiazide diuretic blocking the sodium chloride channel in the DCT. Typically, this is in the form of oral metolazone, which we give about 30 minutes before we give the loop diuretic to stop the distal collecting tubule from reabsorbing all that sodium that then gets delivered distally. This is also an IV formulation, chlorothiazide, which has the same mechanism of action, but is a little bit more expensive and not our go-to. In this same thread, you can then add on acetazolamide, which is a carbonic anhydrase inhibitor that can inhibit sodium absorption at the level of the proximal tubule. And then spironolactone can also do the same in the collecting ducts. So now you've got the majority of the nephron covered. And as a last resort, if you really can't get fluid off, this may indicate an issue either with the kidneys or the heart's inability to perfuse the kidneys. And at this point, I'd call for help from our nephrology and cardiology colleagues. So sequential nephron blockade. When I was a medical student, a very kind and budding educator who was a junior resident at the time by the name of Walker Red taught me about this for the very first time on the cardiology ward. So I thank him for this pearl of knowledge. But let's talk a little bit more about diuretics. Can you explain some of the common side effects of diuretic medications? With all these different diuretics, one of the big side effects to watch out for is electrolyte derangements. So keep a tight eye on that BMP. Specifically with loop diuretics, watch out for hypokalemia and hypomagnesemia. You may find yourself checking twice a day BMPs and really repleting that potassium and magnesium often. Loop diuretics can also increase urate levels and so can precipitate gout flares, something I've seen here and there in hospitalized patients, and can be quite morbid. For thiazide diuretics, one additional electrolyte abnormality that you might see is hyponatremia. Spironolactone, on the other hand, it's a potassium-sparing diuretic, so here you actually need to monitor for the development of hyperkalemia. But you can actually use this to your advantage and to help maintain normal potassium levels while you're diuresing patients with loop diuretics. Now let's talk about one other metabolic derangement you might see, that pesky rising bicarbonate number. We talked earlier about trying to stop the reabsorption of sodium at multiple points in the nephron with the goal of being effective naturesis. But when we do this, we increase the amount of sodium that's delivered more distally in the tubules, which then leads to increased urinary hydrogen and potassium secretion. Furthermore, the relative volume contraction then leads to sodium bicarbonate reabsorption. 
So increased urinary hydrogen secretion, sodium bicarbonate reabsorption, and contraction alkalosis can lead to overall elevations in these bicarbonate levels with diuresis. And ultimately, you get a metabolic alkalosis. So what can you do here? Well, you don't want to give normal saline since that will defeat the purpose of all your amazing work with your diuretic therapy. But you can give potassium chloride if the patient will tolerate it or trial some acetazolamide, which will inhibit proximal sodium bicarbonate reabsorption. Excellent. So let me wrap up with a case update. So we increased Ms. E's ferrosamide to 160 milligrams IV and she starts to put out effectively again and her creatinine actually improves back to her baseline. She's also back to room air at baseline and two liters at night, which is her prior oxygenation requirement. And her weight after diuresis is 235 pounds, which is less than the 245 of her supposed dry weight at discharge last time, which suggests that either one, she had never been quite dry at discharge previously, or number two, she may have lost some non-water weight in the last month due to poor dietary intake. She's discharged home with Meals on Wheels, which is a service that provides hot meals to seniors with cardiac-friendly meals. So before we wrap up, Dr. Chang, can you share a few final pearls for listeners to take home? Yeah, absolutely. Nice job on that patient case, Joyce. Um, I would say a few pearls. One is I would transform your thinking of diuresis to naturesis. These patients are very much RAS upregulated and tend to want to hold on to sodium. So the question of how you effectively diarrhea someone is really a question of how to achieve naturesis, which is effective excretion of sodium. So here, our go-to is the loop diuretic. And if that doesn't work, escalate the dose, increase the frequency, start a drip, or then pursue sequential nephron blockade by layering on that thiazide diuretic, the spironolactone, and the acetazolamide. These are some tricks you can keep in your back pocket if you find it difficult to augment diuresis in a patient. Remember that patients should start peeing one to two hours after you give that first IV Lasix dose. And if they aren't, don't be afraid to double that dose and repeat this process as needed. Don't wait that six hours later to figure this out. Also remember the 80-40-20-1 rule that'll help you easily convert between different loop diuretics. And finally, get concerned if that patient you're diuresing develops progressive renal dysfunction or worsening hypotension while they still look volume overloaded. It might be time to call for help at that point. Incredible. Thank you so much, Dr. Chang, for your time here today. We are so excited about your involvement in the digital medical education world and hope to hear more of your voice in the future. And Run the List listeners, keep an eye out for Leslie Chang in your future listens on the podcasts. Thank you so much, Dr. Chang. Thanks, Joyce, for having me.